In today's episode, we begin a new series on the Gospel of Mark with chapter 1, the first 21 verses. In his Gospel, Mark really wastes no time launching into the life and ministry of Jesus. The chapter introduces John the Baptizer, a prophet sent to prepare the way for the Christ's arrival. And when Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized, a voice from heaven declares him God's beloved Son. Immediately, Jesus is compelled by the Spirit to be off in the wilderness where he undergoes temptation by Satan. And of course, Jesus is going to call his disciples. A lot to talk about this morning, and it is a good morning and blessed Pentecost to you. Today is Friday, October 20th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, my guest this morning is the Reverend David Boisclare. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Boisclare. Welcome back to the program. Pastor Boo, it's such a joy to be with you and all of our listeners. Well, I'm happy to have you on. You're a frequent guest, and I always like it when you're on. You do such a great job. In fact, you um, are a frequent guest also on uh, Sharper Iron, isn't that right, at 8 a.m.? Absolutely. That's the only place where we can sharpen our iron with the Word of God. Well, we can do it every, elsewhere, too, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, faithful KFO, KFUO listeners are actually getting to hear you twice today, brother, as this morning at 8 a.m. you were uh, the guest on Sharper Iron fantastic Bible study program by Pastor Tim Apple, and now here you are to help us open up the Gospel of Mark. It's kind of like David Boisclair Day here on KFUO. Yeah, it seems like that, and and uh, we just love KFUO. I think uh, we can't listen to any other station. Well, we do too, obviously, and uh, happy to have you on board. So I tell you what, we are going to uh, dive into this text, lots to talk about today. Uh, before we do, let's do what we always do and start our time together in prayer. Would you lead that? prayer, please. Absolutely. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your inspiration of your servant, St. Mark, the lion of God's people, proclaiming the loving, active, and powerful ministry of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As you through him began the gospel of your Son, so may you always begin us anew each day in this life-giving word of life. Uh, guide us as we joyfully look at Mark's gospel in this coming church year, year of the gospel of St. Mark, that we may behold anew the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are. We're going to explore this profound piece of Scripture, uncover that remarkable life and teachings of our Lord Jesus as documented by Mark, one of his earliest followers. And Mark's account is known for its like dynamic and action-packed narrative, is it not, brother? It's, it's pretty quick. It's, it's concise, I guess is another way to put it. Yeah, that's the reason why I think the early church designated him as being the the cherub, uh, which had the or, or the head of a lion on the cherubs. You know, in Ezekiel's vision, uh, there was four cherubs, and they had four head, uh, four faces, and uh, there was the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. 
And uh, Mark is, of course, considered to be the lions that showing the uh, active son of God as he does ministry and, and work. And, uh, and, and, and of course, a lion is, is very powerful and very active. Now, in terms of timing, many scholars say that Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels, having been written before Peter's martyrdom in the mid 60s, so you know, roughly 30 years after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and so some people say, well, maybe it came right after that. Uh, I don't know. Tell us a little bit about, I guess, just when and who and the why of the Gospel of Mark. Well, yeah, he, I, he makes his first appearance in the book of Acts. Um, he's a... a I think he's a, a relative of Barnabas. Uh, he um, he kind of probably gives a signature in his own gospel. Uh, there was a, a young man that had just a, uh, probably a, a cloth wrapped around him going into the Garden of Gethsemane, and as the soldiers were leading the Lord away after arresting him, they laid hands on this young man with with the uh, uh, cloth, and and he ran away naked because they pulled the cloth off of him. And 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 of course he doesn't mention who that is. And and um, it's interesting that he in his gospel uh, mentions uh, you know kind of interesting facts uh, like uh, for Simon of Cyrene who uh, bore Jesus's or was compelled to uh, bear Jesus's cross to Golgotha that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Um, in, in a sense, you, you have, uh, with the close association with the Apostle Peter, you have uh, that, you know, there's, a, there's a, an apostolic connection to this gospel, even though Mark himself was not uh, named as an apostle. His mother's name was Mary, I believe, and they lived in Jerusalem. Uh, so maybe she was the one who provided the upper room for the, um, uh, the Last Supper. Um, you know, it's, they think that his gospel is the earliest because it's the shortest, but it's also very vivid. Uh, you know, I remember a professor comparing, um, uh, Matthew's account of the, uh, transfiguration of Jesus and, and Mark's and, and, you know, it says the, the thing that Mark has there is, uh, that, uh, his robe, uh, what became as white as no fuller or no uh, launderer on earth could make it bleach it white. Uh, whereas, whereas Matthew kind of, uh, the, the professor said, kind of had sort of a stilted uh, saying that was white as the light. But that's, but you know, that's the word of God. <laughs> so we don't want to criticize right. that. But uh, you, but know, you do. So, and, so, and if um, I can interject, though, if I can interject, though, you, sure, it's the word of God, but you do see the personality of the servants of God in it. So, I mean, yeah, it's still perfectly valid to say, yeah, Mark was a little more vivid on that. <laughs> yeah, and he, he was more—he was more of a Hebrew thinker because his his gospel is it, it does you know it doesn't have uh, you know subordinate clauses or as many subordinate clauses as this and this and this and this and and you know it's it's all factually set down and he, he uses the word immediately a lot if you'll notice that when you read his gospel immediately jesus did this immediately this happened and uh you know it's it's and it's a really exciting um odyssey uh this year in in our gospel readings for the church here that we are going to use this precious gospel absolutely one of the reasons why i chose it so yeah we we have this um 
this this very concise, this very early text, and that has led some people to think that well, you know, the other the other two synoptic gospels are merely expounding upon this one, or they just took this one and they wrote their own. Do, do you have any ideas about the relationship between Mark and the other two synoptic gospels? You know, what's rather interesting is that um, Mark uh, agrees with Luke in some passages, uh, you know, as opposed to Matthew. Um, and, 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 and a lot of times, perhaps, when you, when you have sort of a, a repetition of, of words or phrases, it's because uh, scribes maybe remember, you know, as they, because they didn't have printing in, in, in the first century, but they copied uh, books down in longhand or, or, you know, in manuscript form. And so they, they um, uh, were, were thinking of a passage from another uh, gospel, and then they might, might have continued on with that. But um, uh, I, I think that there are there is evidences that uh, both Matthew and Luke used Mark. Now, uh, the church, of course, witnesses by the order in which uh, the Gospels are in the scriptures that, that it is, it's called Matthean, you'd say Matthean priority, although, uh, you know, literary scholars might say it's Markan priority, that Mark was written first. Interesting, very interesting, in fact. And, and you already mentioned Mark's relationship with Peter. The early church pretty consistently just held that Mark, while being the inspired author, there's no question about that, uh, but it essentially is, is Peter's account through Mark. Exactly. And just like uh, Luke was associated with St. Paul, so, so right. um, actually St. Paul as an apostle uh, kind of spoke through uh, the evangelist Luke. And I was going to say that, you know, John, when he wrote his gospel, he said, oh, there are three uh, gospels here. And, and let, let me uh, take in on the task of, of maybe mentioning some of the things that they don't mention. And because he does talk about the many things that Jesus does. And people should know that the four gospels were being pretty much circulated together very, very early in history. And so uh, these are... These are the testimonies of Jesus and have been seen as that and understood from that uh, pretty much since the earliest time in the church. So we're going to go ahead and begin. Now, unlike some, uh, Mark does not begin with a narrative, um, or I should say a nativity of Jesus. Um, but we are going to see how he begins as I read, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, pausing there at the end of verse 8. So, yeah, this is really 
It says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and indeed so, but in some ways it's kind of like the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, because again, like I said before, he skips the nativity. Oh, yes. And, and uh, it's interesting, the uh, commentators point out that um, Jose, uh, the um, prophet Hosea, I believe, begins like the beginning of the Word of God. So, so this is kind of like, um, you know, maybe utilizing a prophetic uh, beginning to, to this piece. Uh, and, and that's, of course, the idea of the gospel. It's not necessarily a biography. You know, then you'd, then you'd have, uh, you know, you'd obviously have to go into the silent years, you might call them, of when between Jesus being 12 and Jesus being uh, 30 years old. And, and um, you know, then that would be a biography. This is, this is a, a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Right, oyangelion, right, the gospel, the good news. And, and he calls him the Son of God. Now, there are some later manuscripts that drop off that Son of God, uh, mostly probably because of scribal errors, but, but original's pretty, pretty sure that it said the Son of God, and that's important because um, it, it, we don't really get that title too much in Mark, uh, but especially here at the beginning and at the end, which is, which is kind of neat in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. And it's kind of like it's a bookends that that have the gospel where, you know, you have this uh, confession and then you have the confession by the centurion at the cross. Surely this man was the son yeah. of God. And it's and, and like everything, way. everything uh, just builds on that. And uh, it, it's kind of like it, it's kind of like you, you follow along and then you and then you get this. Uh, presentation of this wonderful event. It, it's just, and that's the manner in which uh, we as pastors preach to God's people, that we want to tell them some some fabulous event of what the Lord has done, you know, in, in such a, in such a uh, simple and in, in, in such a homey uh, manner in which uh, we read it in the gospel. Well, he begins with a quotation uh, from Isaiah the prophet, uh, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's talking about, in this case, John the baptizer who's appearing and will fulfill that role of the one who's come to prepare the way. Um, the Jewish people at this time, let's say someone had not heard of Jesus but was a faithful Jew and he's reading this, and he reads from Isaiah, or he reads this quote from Isaiah, who does he think is coming, I guess is the best way to say it. Like, who did the Jews think was coming to fulfill this messenger? Uh, did they think it was going to be somebody like John the Baptizer? Well, well, I'm I'm thinking they were they were thinking of the Messiah. They were, I mean, this of course. Uh, by the way, the the beginning of that quote is from uh, Malachi chapter three. Uh, let's see, Malachi uh, chapter three, three one. verse one. Yeah, and and so that shows that that probably this probably was like a book of testimonies from because at that time they didn't have a New Testament; they only had an Old Testament, and and they they had the writing of of uh, Hosea, Malachi, and so on, and um, so uh, you know in in this. This particular case, uh, you know, it harks back to the servant of the Lord that's prophesied in Isaiah, which which I think they think is messianic. Obviously, that's that's the central hope of the people 
of the Old Testament, of the people of God in the Old Testament. Um, and and uh, so, you know, in, in, in a sense, uh, you know, there, it's basically picking up on, on the final words of the Old Testament that God will send uh, Elijah, the prophet. And, and, and that, that's the forerunner. That's why at every uh, Jewish Passover meal, they always send uh, one of the children uh, of the family out to the door to see if Elijah is out there. You know, if he's out there, that means that's the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I, I think that as they're looking for this appearing of the forerunner of the, of the Messiah— uh, they they have in mind, I, I would suppose, the prototypical Old Testament prophet. And, and I'm not, you know, the intertestamental period, you know, we have prophets coming and going, you have the prophets that are recorded in the Old Testament, but it's my understanding that we have a pretty long period of time since there had really been prophetic words from God through a prophet in that sense. And yet, oh, yeah. when, when John appears, yeah. though, he, I mean, he fits the bill of an Old Testament prophet. I mean, it's not just some Galilean or some guy from Rome that just comes around. I mean, this guy, he if you were going to cast somebody to play an Old Testament prophet, you would clothe them in camel's hair with a leather belt and have them eat locust and wild honey and be out in the wilderness, you know, preaching all kinds of things. That's what John is doing. And he's not putting on a show. I don't want to give that impression, but I'm just saying, you know, John really does fit the bill of the of of who he is. He he has a ministry of repentance, and uh, in, and even as the prophets had prophesied in the Old Testament that that God wants His people to be out in the wilderness. Uh, so that they can rely on him. I mean, as the Lord Jesus said to Satan in, in the temptation about uh, turning uh, uh, bread, making bread out of rocks, uh, you know, he said uh, that people will not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They need to return to the wilderness in repentance. And, and, and because it is their gracious God that invites them uh, out to be with and, and to rely upon him solely. And, and, that's, and that's the idea. You know, there's a, there's a difference in that passage from Isaiah 40, where you have a, a, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. You know, so mm-hmm. in a sense, uh, uh, Mark's gospel, as well as Matthew's gospel, in quoting this, uh, uh, says that uh, a voice cries in the wilderness. So if you want to, if you want to call to the people, and, and, you know, by the way, there was no uh, uh, punctuation marks. I mean, you know, the words were sort of written together, and sometimes in in, in the Greek manuscripts, uh, you had you had uh, the, there were no there wasn't even any word division. That's why uh, people would read out loud because they made the word division uh, when they read uh, the Greek or the uh, Hebrew and so on. And and uh, in this particular case, uh, he is he is out there in the wilderness where the Lord wants his people to be. His diet of locust and wild honey and these rough clothes. Is there a reason why he wore those things? I mean, you know, like I said, he really fits the bill, but that wasn't the reason why he wasn't doing it to put on a show. Um, But we do see this connection to Elijah, right? Who was dressed in clothing made of hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. We see that in, in a second Kings for one eight. Um, I'm sure that's the connection that's being made, but 
why specifically is John doing this? Is he under a vow? What do you, what do you say? Well, um, you know, I mean, he 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 devotes his entire life to uh, the proclamation of repentance, uh, and and he does it out in the wilderness. And there's and 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 in this particular case, uh, it, it's. It's why you know we as pastors too, when we're when we're um, ordained, we are said to, we are to give ourselves wholly to this office. And in his case, of course, there wasn't probably any any um, uh, uh, Denny's or any other uh, restaurants <laughs> around to get get any any fine food, sure. and and probably uh, lo- locusts uh, and wild honey were were very tasty. And to to a man that probably just sure. was constantly out in the out in the uh, in the wilderness, out in a in a kind of a dead uh, sort of surroundings, and and uh, uh, and, and so um, you know, and 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 and, he, and as I said, or as you said, in in Second uh, Kings one eight, there you have you know he, he that's this is Isaiah. Shouldn't that have uh, you know? pointed out to the people that came out to him, this is this is the forerunner of the Messiah. Indeed. And so just like uh, the forerunner should do, but also really as all the Old Testament prophets did, he has a message, and the message does not point to himself but points to another, right? After me is coming one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to bend down and untie. He doesn't point to himself. But he's pointing to other. And what's interesting is so far, I think the people think that John is, if I can use my analogy of casting, if this were a movie, they would think that John is the leading man. They would think that he's the protagonist, the main character. Ask any of John's disciples. They'll tell you how great and mighty he is. They're going out to the desert to see him. Um, the power of God's word. He's drawing sinners to the waters of this baptism for forgiveness. But ultimately, his whole message is that there is one coming greater, a long-awaited Christ, the Redeemer, the Savior of Israel. I, I don't know if there are any uh, John the Baptizer Lutheran churches. I don't know if there are any churches named after John the Baptist, but but his message is so important for us because even today, you and I, and really all Christians, what is our job? To point to Jesus. And so uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of John the Baptist, let's put it that way. Yeah, you know, in in um, in romance countries like uh, France and in Italy, of course, they have they name uh, their some of them name their sons John Baptist or Johann uh, Johann Baptist, uh, and and um, you know it's it's um, uh, you know in 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 a sense as it says it points out that the the gospel begins with him you know with his ministry uh, because that's that that in that's that's in the way of God who always um gives uh credentials to those who who are to preach his word um you know all of us as pastors uh when when we uh are out among our people and 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 if anybody should challenge us which perhaps they should what by what right are you uh, speaking the word of God to us with authority, and we can say, "Well, I was I was called by God," and and in this particular case, it was this this forerunner that um, uh, gave. Well, I, I don't want to say he gave Jesus his credentials, but but I mean, in, in a sense, it, it's all for pointing forward to Jesus. You know, some of our brothers always make a 
uh, point of talking about that rear dose painting, you know, the, a, a painting that's above an altar somewhere in a church in Europe, where John has a larger finger, a, uh, you know, an index finger, uh, pointing to Jesus. And that's that's to emphasize that that probably, you know, with a with a baptism of repentance, but also to point to Jesus. He is the man. He is the man. That's interesting. I'm not a familiar with that Reredos. So that's uh, yeah, I'll, I'm going to have to look at that. But uh, well, I tell you what we um, hmm, do we have time to keep going. Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's dig into the next part of the text as we come really close to our break, though. Um, John is out there and he is baptizing people. He's made this declaration that I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Mark tells us in verse nine, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven came you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Pausing there. So beautiful, obviously, um, but again, concise. Mark doesn't really draw out the stories. If, if you know anything about the communication out there, there's painters and pointers. And a painter is someone who, who likes to paint you a picture. And the most important thing that they'll say usually comes toward the end. Pointers are those who like to get right to the point and the most important thing usually is toward the beginning. Mark's a pointer, whereas Luke and especially John are painters. And so he's not really painting a picture. He's pointing us to the facts of the matter, which is why this also makes a really great first gospel for new Christians. Um, so anyway, Jesus comes from Galilee and he's baptized. Um, but even in the few verses that we have about this, there's a lot to unpack. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I always, I'm always reminding. Uh, you know, one of the one of the problems that that uh, maybe we face uh, in looking at this is the distinction between baptizing with water and baptizing with the Spirit, and and what that involves. Uh, I mean, we we confess that holy baptism is uh, the um, washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, that God uh, promises to regenerate us, uh, whoever is born uh, born of water and the Spirit. Uh, enters into the kingdom of heaven, and so um, you know what's he talking about when he ta- when he distinguishes uh, baptizing with water and with the spirit? That's that's a big question, big time. Well, I tell you what, those are questions that we're going to talk about and more when we come back from our break. But folks, don't go anywhere. Pastor Boyce Claire and I will keep on going in Mark chapter one when we come back. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. 
to learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and with me this morning is the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. We've been opening up the book of Mark this morning with chapter one. We're just going to be covering the first 20 verses. Now, if you have any feedback or questions or maybe some perspectives to share on Mark, don't hesitate to reach out. Now, you're always welcome to call into the studio when we're live, and we're live today. You can we can put your question on the air. That's 800-730-2727. 1-800-730-2727. Or you can reach me via email at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. If you're not comfortable talking on the air, send me a message. I'm always monitoring it during the show. I can, might be able to get it out there, your question. Okay, so back to the Bible, because that's why we're here. Pastor Boys Claire, we just got into the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the river. So short. You know, none of the uh, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is probably my absolute favorite narrative line situation in all of Scripture, as is, is, is crazy as it is to say. But I just I love that juxtaposition of John just pointing to Jesus and saying, look, that's the one who fulfills it. But we don't get that. We just get Jesus was baptized by John in the river. And maybe from more of a, it's sort of like a, we do Christology. We, we just, we love Jesus for us to, to live as Christ. And, and so we, in this particular gospel, it's sort of like Chris, Christology from below, you might say. In other words, how he's experienced by uh, his, you know, the people of the first century that he came to. Um, and, and and I think you know you you mentioned about uh, John one twenty nine. I, I I think that that is as mo- as important an expression of the gospel as John three sixteen is uh, that takes away the sin of the world. It shows it shows the effectiveness and the thoroughness of what Jesus did for all people on the cross. And it's it's that it's such a vital verse uh, to the gospel. Now, what's interesting, too, as we look even here in the baptism of Jesus, we have uh, a contentious line, and that is verse 10, which, in my estimation, I'm interesting to hear your perspective, mean, tells us nothing. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So here's what I'm saying. It says, and when he came up out of the water, here's what I'm talking about, folks. There are some people uh, yeah. who use this to say there has to be a particular mode of baptism. Right. We as Lutherans um, and frankly, with the historic Christian church, confess that the mode of baptism doesn't matter. It's about the word of God and the application of water. I prefer, for symbolism's sake, uh, full immersion baptisms. You know, it's just my personal preference, but that doesn't have any bearing on the efficacy of it. Yet people who say one may only be baptized by full immersion often point to this when he came up out of the water. A lot of paintings will show him coming up out of the water in, in many ways the way I was baptized, you know, fully immersed and then coming back up. But it really doesn't specify the mode of baptism, does it, brother? 
No, no, it doesn't. Uh, you can be in the water uh, when you're, if you, even if it's ankle deep, uh, <laughs> you know, step in the water or step out of the water. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 there's kind of a story about maybe a person that, that emphasizes, um, uh, immersion, full immersion baptism with a Lutheran. And, 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 and then, um, the Lutheran says, okay, let's go to the, let's go to this uh, lake over here and see how, how, what, what's important here. So he goes in there with his feet. Is that far enough? He said, no. Then he goes, down for uh, down further and up to his chest in water and he says is that enough no and then so he goes uh, under the water and pops up and 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 he says yeah that's enough and he says well the head it's the head that counts (laughs) (laughs) well that kind of what you're saying when you say that Uh, i do remember that when i was baptized it was in a baptismal font and of course god worked his promises through that baptism so don't misunderstand me folks in fact like i said before i i like full immersion baptisms but I remember there was a, it was in the Baptist church and there was a deacon on every corner and they wanted to make sure that every part of me got under and, uh, and I had to do it three times too. And I always thought like if my big toe hadn't got under, you know, am I going to pop up in heaven and be like, Oh, where's the big toe? You know, he didn't get all the way under the water. So, you know, we're not making fun, but at the same time, there is a little bit of, I don't know, just when we, when we take away the emphasis on what's important, that is God's word, the application of the water, the faith that we're given through this act by the Holy Spirit, which a lot of those folks don't even acknowledge, then we realize it's not important. You know, Jesus coming up out of the water, as you said, you could be to your knee deep and then still come up on shore and people would say, he came up out of the water. Um, It's just sort of a linguistic kind of twisting that people do. Exactly. I think there is a, there is a, uh, a, tendency to emphasize the necessity of uh, immersion uh, because of what the apostle in in Romans 6 says that we were buried with Christ by baptism into death Uh, and so you know in in a sense the the symbolism that that's involved there Uh, but in in those churches that emphasize that a lot of times you know by the way uh, the Eastern Orthodox uh, immerse uh, their infants um, and, uh, and, and, but the, the idea here is the, the, the manner in which it's done is important because that's all there is, uh, in, in the theology of scripture, uh, baptism, what's more important that what's going on is what God does in the heart or, or, uh, in the soul of the person being baptized, according to his promise is that he regenerates through baptism. He promises to regenerate through baptism. So, so, and that's why it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, perhaps, you know, I'm just, I'm just using this as a, as a, as a possibility that it doesn't matter the manner in which this is done. But when, then you also in Mark, in Mark's gospel, you also have, have the passage where it says that you baptize dining couches. Right. Um, you know, I mean, these things were built of, of stone. You know, in other words, they had a crane or something to take and, and submerge it into a large yeah, pot you're of water. Yeah, dragging it down to the river. Right. No, and yeah. that's and that baptizo word used there, right. And, and our, our friends in the Baptist church and stuff, they'll say, well, this means um, to, to immerse. And it's like, well, no, friend, it means to wash. But, you know, anyway, my, by the way, my son was fully immersed as an infant in the font at the chapel of Saints Timothy and Titus at the seminary. So, you know, again, we're not saying anything, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but yeah, insisting on the mode, I would say, is missing the point. But getting to the point, Jesus doesn't have sins, he doesn't need to be baptized, and yet 
he is. And, and we know from elsewhere to fulfill scripture, but we aren't really told that in Mark. We're just saying that he was baptized. Yes, and and um, he was he was in solidarity with God's people. Um, and, and for Jesus, it wasn't so much what he was getting from baptism, but what he was putting into baptism. Uh, you know, in, in in a sense, it's it. Um, uh, so what he what he was doing there is is he was fulfilling all righteousness, as he says to John, as recorded in Matthew's gospel account of the baptism of Jesus. Um, but in in that sense, it was something that God's will required. It was the will of God for His people, and so uh, even the Messiah, who of course uh, did fulfilled all righteousness and and fulfilled the law completely for us, was in obedience in uh, being baptized for us. Absolutely. One time I preached it, and I said that you know after all these other people had been baptized. Uh, for the repentance of their sins, Jesus wades into a water filled with their sins, right? He's bathing in, in, in their sins because that's what he's going to do. He's going to take their sins upon himself and, and, and crucify them. But we have this famous immediately from Mark, the Greek word euthis, which is used a lot in Mark, as you've already pointed out. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending upon him in the manner or like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That's not for Jesus' sake. Jesus knows this, but it's certainly for the sake of those around him. Uh, any other comments you want to make about that? And and yes, and and in in it's interesting in in John's gospel, as as you pointed out, when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, uh, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Also, he says, "You know, he's the one that the Spirit came down upon." And and in, in other words, he that sent me to baptize told me that the one on whom the Spirit comes down and rests is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so, and so that that's a very very important as, you know, what what is fulfilled in this uh, in the baptism of our Lord. Well, but then we get another immediately as we move into verse twelve, because Mark writes the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, what happens next in the next verse, folks, is John being arrested. So so again, a very concise, like, you know, and also Jesus was tempted. Uh, it's not that he's being flippant with the information, but sometimes the curtness of it can be a little jarring because, you know, having read the other accounts, which really expand on exactly what Satan said and how Jesus confronted Satan with the word of God, here he just tells us, oh yeah, as soon as he was baptized, the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Yeah, and, and it's rather interesting that that uh, Mark uses such um, very vivid uh, language. Uh, you know, at at one point. Uh, you know, he, he shows that Jesus was very angry. I mean, you know, a lot of times, uh, perhaps anybody who might want to um, sort of make it a little bit more uh, for, uh, acceptable to polite society would euphemistically try to to uh, sort of touch up all of this. But but Mark is very crass. 
in, in talking, well, the heavens were ripped open. Well, of course they were, just like the, the uh, veil of the temple was ripped asunder by, you know, through Christ's crucifixion, and, and, uh, and, and the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Uh, we know that he, he learned obedience, his human nature, uh, according to his human nature, our dear Lord learned obedience by what he suffered. Uh, and, and of course, the, the Spirit was uh, definitely a part of that. Yeah, some people forget, uh, myself included, that, you know, Jesus, according to his human nature, grew in wisdom. And that's, it's, that's really hard for us to get our mind around, considering he is 100% the God and creator of the universe. But there is a humiliation that goes along with Jesus's incarnation that I think sometimes it's hard for us to get our minds around. And as you pointed out, it's the spirit that drove him out in the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, sometimes people remove the spirit's role in Jesus's temptation, merely saying, well, then Satan was tempting him. Well, that's true, but this was all the plan of God. And, and you know, it's, it's so precious that you have at the baptism of Jesus the, present, uh, the manifestation of all three persons of the Holy Trinity. The Father speaks from heaven, the Son as a man is baptized, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove uh, comes down from heaven. And, and so it, it kind of uh, sets up and establishes our baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Indeed. Beautiful imagery. Um, ready to move on to the next part? Certainly. Well, Mark is, because then he goes right into John being arrested. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I, I'm just going to just stop with those two verses. The time is fulfilled the gospel, the kingdom of gospel is at hand. Repent and believe. Um, Jesus calling people to repentance is something that we take for granted, but in our modern society, even those who claim to follow Jesus, they don't like to hear Jesus say, repent. They don't like to hear Jesus say, you know, turn away from your sins, but he, he is saying that, and he does do that. He means it. When Jesus says, go and sin no more, he means it. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's rather interesting. Uh, you know, people uh, in in um, uh, mommy coddling sin, or you know, I mean, just thinking it, it's not so. So you are a sinner. Well, God should accept you as a sinner. You know, you get the uh, you get the uh, misunderstanding that uh, a sin is something that can be accepted. Um, I, I love the quote from Augustine uh, that it's maybe an application of his writings, but he says, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. So, so yes, God accepts us uh, as we are, but, but also with a view to sanctifying us to, uh, to, uh, he has, it, it takes Christ going to his cross to take away the sins of the world. Uh, the sin is what is the, is the thing that separates us from our God in, in it. And, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, drastic type of, uh, ministry that, uh, of repentance that John and Jesus performed. Indeed. I mean, and Jesus is, Bab, uh, sorry, Jesus' baptism and then temptation in the wilderness precedes him going out and calling people to repentance. 
and I think that's important too. We could look to Hebrews four fifteen, where it is written, "For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin." Now, I don't think, and correct me if I'm uh, misspeaking here, I don't think that Jesus was only tempted during that time in the wilderness. I think Jesus faced temptation throughout his ministry and life just because that's part of his incarnation and was, of course, continuously without sin. But that doesn't mean he wasn't truly tempted because if he wasn't truly tempted, then there really is nothing to being able to resist those temptations. With that said, he he resists them on our behalf, and now he's able to, with that in mind, go out and call people to repentance. Uh, am, am, I, am I speaking about it the right way? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, when uh, um, Luke uh, gives the account of the temptation, he says that, that Satan uh, retired from him until a convenient time. Uh, when, when Peter, uh, after Jesus uh, first predicted his passion, uh, his going to the cross, uh, Peter says, oh, this will never happen to you. You know, and, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so so uh-huh. obviously he was being tempted then. Yeah, absolutely. He was being tempted throughout his, his life. And temptation uh, does not have to have with it the risk of uh, succumbing to the temptation. Uh, you know, it is impossible to, to tempt God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in, in order to understand uh, that, uh, basically, that Christ could not sin and Christ could not fall to temptation, you have to remember the person of God the Son that is being tempted. Uh, he, he cannot be tempted, uh, you know, in, in the sense of, of falling. In, 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 there is no risk of him falling to temptation, but yet he, he still was flesh and blood, he certainly felt the the uh, you know the weakness of his flesh in dealing with temptation. So we have to understand temptation in a proper perspective. Then we see that even in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? As you brought up a minute ago, and that is that Jesus says, you know, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but Thy will. The 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 interplay between the divine and human natures of Christ is clearly an eternal mystery, and something the Church has wrestled with, and we try our best to explain it, but we never, just like the Trinity, we never really will be able to, but it is important for people to know that, yeah, Jesus was tempted, and now, victorious over Satan's temptations, he comes out and he calls others to repent, turn from their ways, and believe. And as a part of that ministry, he needs some help, and he's going to call some disciples. So let's start with verse 16 and finish up our text for this morning. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Beautiful text, but you know what? I've always, I've been ruined on the word fishers of men, and here's why. Um, In Microsoft Word, every time I type out fishers of men, it corrects it to anglers of men. (laughs) So I, I don't know if... 
anglers of men is more proper nowadays, but I always think about that when I see fishers of men. Anyway, he calls Simon Andrew and the brother, uh, sorry, Simon and Andrew, his brother. Uh, Simon's, of course, going to be Peter. So he calls these men. They don't go to him. He calls them. He calls them directly, too. Uh, now, now, of course, the Lord, is st- who is still present in his church, uh, in, in, in word and sacrament, is present. Uh, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, who calls pe- men directly into the office of the holy ministry, as he called uh, Andrew, Peter, uh, James, and John directly into the office of the holy ministry and the and the form of the office of course was as an apostle as a as his uh representative or his ambassador uh the sent a sent one as the father has sent me so i send you and so in this particular case he's he's, he's going and 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 he is uh basically beginning uh the the christian church as we know it today by doing these things yeah, so he calls them. He says, follow me, and we have that famous word of Mark's, immediately they left their nets. And I have to be, I have to laugh a little bit with verse 19 and 20 because it says he goes a little farther. He sees James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother. They're in the boat, and they're with their father, and they have some hired servants. It's, it's, you know, it's a business, and they're out there working, and they just leave him. They leave him in the boat. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and I always— Again, I'm just conjecturing here, but I always imagine looking at uh, Zebedee in the boat from a distance, and he's throwing up his hands in the air like, where are you guys going? I'm sure it wasn't (laughs) like that, but still, that's kind of how I imagine it. But the immediacy of both Jesus's calling and their response to it uh, is significant. Oh, absolutely. And and um, we're thankful to God that these faithful men of God, uh, you know, were, were willing to, uh, you know, leave their lives. You know, it's it, it's it's comforting for us, too, especially when when people in our church uh, think about vocations in in uh, ministry in, in the church. Um, and that's so very important now is because the uh, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And so, uh, you know, I, I think Jesus goes out through the word of recruitment, uh, follow, follow and, and, and work in the, in the kingdom. And uh, so I think that, that, that that's going out today when, when um, men, and, uh, in, in the case of the pastoral ministry, or, or women in the case of being teachers, uh, Lutheran, uh, Christian teachers, Lutheran teachers, or, or in any other church profession that they do, deaconesses, of course. Well, and I think we should also make a distinction here between Jesus calling them to be a disciple and then when he calls them to be apostles. I think it's safe to say that at this point, he's not calling them to be apostles or pastors or anything else. He's calling them to be disciples. And then he would prepare them, form them to be the apostles he wants them to be over the course of about three years, which I don't think is a I think has something to do with the fact that it takes about three years or four years in our tradition to prepare for pastoral ministry. But regardless, he doesn't just sort of give them all the secret knowledge. He calls them to, well, follow him, become disciples. He's the rabbi, they're the students, and he has a plan for them in the future. Um, and, and you're right to include all Christians there too, because Jesus calls all of us to follow him and be his disciples, And among the disciples, he gives us different vocations. 
Some are really important vocations like that of mother and father, and some are like that of pastor. <laughs> they all have different vocations, but you know, we have, uh, we have Jesus's call for all of us to follow him and be his disciples. And really to make, yeah. to be anglers of men too, right? We're supposed to go out and yeah. actually anglers of humankind, I should say. We're, we're to go out <laughs> and proclaim the word to all people. We want all people to be disciples of Jesus. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a very vital distinction that you made. And, and because he does call all of us, we are called by him. Those whom he uh, foreknew, them he also uh, predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And, and, and makes his own through baptism. And so, and so that is most certainly a, a very important part of, of our Lord calling us into discipleship, which, of course, is, is for the first time mentioned in the Bible, you might say. Uh, that's one thing that's not in the Old Testament that's in the New Testament. That's the concept of discipleship. Indeed, discipleship. And it's so, it's so important today, and people have all kinds of different ways to think about it. But the primary way to become a disciple is to, and as simple as it sounds, is to follow Jesus. And how do we follow Jesus? Well, by being in his word, by reading the Bible, gathering around word and sacrament, of course, if we're able. Then, um, you know, even Bible studies and shows like this are all ways that we can be good disciples of Christ. Well, that's the end of our text. Looking back at everything we've talked about, um, anything else that maybe we should have emphasized that we didn't? Well, I, I w- would want to say, you know, like there, in, when we're talking about baptism, uh, Christ, of course, uh, with his divine authority, uh, established the sacrament of baptism, in, in which uh, is combined not only the washing with water, but also the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so that that's something that Jesus combines in Christian baptism, although John's baptism was also considered a uh, means of grace like baptism. And so what John was saying is, all I can do is apply the water. He applies the spirit. And, and in um, Matthew's gospel, there's that very interesting saying. You know, John was pointing out that Jesus was mightier than he, greater than he. And then Jesus put, says this in, in Matthew 11, uh, verse 11 where he says, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, which is actually pointing to himself. Uh, so, so Jesus, who is least because he is the uh, one who takes all the sins of the world upon himself, uh, makes himself the least in his kingdom, is greater than John the Baptist in accordance with John's message. Indeed. And we are looking forward to that day that um, he returns. And of course, we get to be with him in glory. That's where we're going to leave it. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. It's a great blessing, and God be with you. Folks, come back Monday as we finish up chapter one and move into chapter two. Now, that section begins with Jesus's teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum where his authoritative and powerful teaching, frankly, amazes the people. And during his sermon, he exercises an unclean spirit from a man, further demonstrating his divine authority. Later, he heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and the news of his miraculous deeds spread rapidly. Well, as you might imagine, crowds began to grow and seek him for his healing and his teaching. But then we have Jesus just moving on to the next town after spending all night healing people. 
Well, he returns and then he heals a paralyzed man, telling him his sins are forgiven, which of course riles up the Pharisees who accuse him of blasphemy. We have all kinds of things to talk about on Monday, so you're going to want to be here as we continue with our study of the book of Mark. So until then, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, be with you always. And we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.